For January 4th, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 79, Wikipedia Brown. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, first one for 2010, where we subject the coming decade... And it's popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve from uh, beautiful Los Angeles, California, with a balmy 75-degree day today on January 3rd as we record this. Uh, it is um, I, your host, Matthew Rather, together with the panel to overthink many things, including their New Year's resolutions and mine and uh, how they did on their resolutions uh, for last year, to kick it off from balmy 75-degree Cambridgeport, Cambridge, Greater Boston Area, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, New England, America, it's Peter Fenzel. Dude, it's snowing outside. I mean, I it's know. not snowing right now, but we have quite a bit of snow. Sorry. I've only, he, he I've knows. Only, I've he only knows. Been, not 75 uh, in Cambridge. I've only, been, <laughs> I've only moved back here since July, so I still am kind of, I have to be a dick about the weather a little bit. A no, little I bit. understand. You got to do what you can do. I don't understand. I understand. You know, and what I, I mean, got to do also... is be a dick about the weather. Well, it's good that you have a reason. You know, <laughs> it's important to have a reason for such things. Did you have uh, a resolution I... on the on the show last year? Were you on the I... New Year's resolutions show? You know, I might have. I thought it might have been something like listen to more music. Might have been my resolution. And if that is, I did it sort of. Um, but like uh, one thing I do remember saying is that my New Year's resolutions, when they're successful, are always resolutions I make jointly with another person, um, and they usually are social resolution resolutions. My most successful resolution ever was this year when we make plans and like people flake out or hesitate or want to downgrade, we are going to go do those things anyway. So that was a very good resolution that I had, and that was I think for 2005, and that worked out very well. Um, but this past year, you know what? This past year, I don't really remember my resolution, which means that this coming year, I'm free to make a resolution that I don't mind if I forget because it probably won't happen, right? So I can make any resolution I want, right? Because the blissful waters of Lathe, uh, Lathe? Lathe will uh, wash over me uh, and, and, and their forgetful powers will take away what this was ever. So I'm going to say my New Year's resolution this year is to get on the second season of Jersey Shore. Uh, I've been working real hard. <laughs> my, buddy, my buddy Brian and I have been talking about this because we started a new list program uh uh we call it we call it the uh, the gentleman's workout and um and i designed it uh customized it so that we have functional strength for hoisting heavy objects or objects of weight above our heads um and it involves handlebar mustaches and such but no 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 no. we're actually tr- secretly training because we want to make it onto the second season of new jersey shore because uh or jersey shore because uh, i want to i want that girl to punch me in the face you have to have uh, that, around. yeah. You have to have that kind of roided out Guido look, I guess, right? Yeah. Like, well, when, I mean, <laughs> Guido is so racist, but no, I um, <laughs> it really is. I mean, it really is a horrible word. But no, I I, I remember telling one of my uh, my friends, fiance's friends, that um, he like after a couple weeks lifting with me, this guy who's also from New Jersey originally would uh would be like driving a driving a Camaro and would be like you know frosting his tips and spiking his hair and 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 then she and she was like oh my god like fiance's gonna be so upset and I was like oh what what do you mean I thought she liked beefcake you know hey I thought I thought she liked that sort of thing I thought that the reason Jersey Shore is popular is because this is what women find attractive right right right. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right? I do Am like I right? how so they're. Uh, I do like how they the the violence perpetrated on a woman was neatly displaced into violence perpetrated by a woman. You know, I love symmetry more than anything else when it comes right down to it. <laughs> so yeah, so that's so Fearful because I forgot last indeed. year's resolution, I made a resolution now that I hope that I forget by the time I have the opportunity to bring it into action. Fantastic. So there you go. Fantastic. Uh, moving on, Mr. Mark Lee. Hi there. Sorry, um, I thought I was going to yes. do a big long intro like I did for for Pete. Okay, moving on to yuppie section of Brooklyn. It's Park Slope's own Mr. Mark Lee. Now, once you did that, then actually didn't feel that special. Um, Sorry. Anyway, my resolution from last year, I think, was actually pretty pedestrian. Something involving. Netflix and catching up all you know, the classic movies that I missed out on. I have, by and large fulfilled that. I think I've been watching about, clocking about one movie per week from Netflix, either via streaming or via 
actually getting the old-fashioned DVD disc. I will say, however, that... Are you watching classic movies on those, or are you doing what I do and watching Starship Troopers on Netflix streaming over and over and over? (laughs) Right, so I think the original plan was something along the lines of kind of going down the IMDb Top 250, getting in, you know, pretty much all of the major, you know, quote-unquote, best movies ever type thing. No, I went really straight for the the action sci-fi shooting about movies along the lines of Starship Troopers. Um, I, I lo- you watch TBS is basically what you're saying. I like TNT. <laughs> yes. Except without the commercials. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Not too shabby. Yeah. Uh. Um, I, will, I will say that uh, one, of, one of the first movies that I saw in 2010, um, not the first movie, but one of the first movies I saw on, in 2010 via Netflix was the oft-mentioned on this podcast Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. And I must <laughs> say uh, <laughs> education experience i won't spoil the ending all i have to say is uh no matter who wins i think we all lose in that one (laughs) (laughs) the same is true of the jersey shore (laughs) (laughs) oh dude crossover mega shark versus giant octopus versus the situation (laughs) yo man you know i can go over there watch shark i don't even know i haven't watched the show i don't have television yeah, it makes me wanna. I'll bet they stream it on MTV.com or something like that. It makes me wanna. Makes me wanna check it out. All these terrible things I've been hearing about Jersey Shore. I don't oh, want to oh, be yeah. in the Jersey Shore stream. I don't want to be in the way that stream. Matt, <laughs> go, go to the MTV website. This is what I did. Go to the MTV website. Just start playing some clips. Just random clips. Um, doesn't really matter what they are. Right. But I guarantee you, your jaw will be hanging loose agape <laughs> um, during the entire in the entirety of the time that you're watching said clip. Your jaw will not be uh, closed. You got it. Got it, Gary. Uh, I will. I will do it. I'm making a nice. I'm making some fried chicken later, so I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna watch Jersey Shore and eat my fried chicken. Wait, what are you, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say that people from Jersey eat fried chicken? No, I think, I, I think, I think they, that's kind of. I think it's kind of racist. Do they know. not eat? People from your neck of the woods in Alabama eat fried chicken. Isn't that right, Mark? Uh, yes, they do. And you're um, Korean, even so. There, there's like a whole Korean fried chicken thing, right? Oh, oh, there, there very much is, is a thing, and that's actually something to think <laughs> some other time is the kind of the food politics and culture going on here between the South and Koreans and fried chicken and African Americans versus Caucasians and all this type of thing. It's a there's a lot to think about here, actually. Yeah. And, and, so, uh, so do a whole fried chicken dedicated podcast. <laughs> I, I think like we had a we had a we had a, a think tank totally dedicated to burritos. Why not uh, talk about <laughs> on a podcast? Which I think was one of my favorite. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> that was actually, that was quite fun. Yes, the greatest burrito ingredient. Uh, was that the first think tank that had a celebrity judge? <laughs> or was that the first think tank at all? I'm pretty sure it was, yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. Who was the celebrity judge? Oh, was it the chairman? Was it Chairman Cox? No, 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 no. no. It was Antonio Banderas. Uh, oh, who who uh, lambasted us for having him judge a Mexican food contest when he was in fact Spanish. <laughs> Spanish. Yeah, it was like paella, like paella yeah. España. Yeah, <laughs> did you guys not see me in all those Almodovar movies? Come on. <laughs> Jordan, uh, <laughs> over to you. What's going on? In the slightly less yuppie part of Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. But by virtue of being like to the north side of a, of a particular street by half a block, I'm in the less yuppie, uh, less yuppie section. Uh, how's it going, guys? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, um, so I'm supposed to talk about my New Year's resolution. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I was on that show, but I remember what my New Year's resolution was in general last year. And I'll, I'll say, like I, like I said it then, which is, you know, I've been hearing some good things about this movie, Little Miss Sunshine. I think I'm going to watch that. <laughs> And I let did. it ride. Let <laughs> it ride. Put it all on black and let it ride. Another I mean, year. like I said, you know, this is one of the first New Year's resolutions that I've ever actually succeeded in keeping. So I think I'm going to take a very similar tactic this year and say that uh, for my New Year's resolution for 2010, I'm going to watch Little Miss Sunshine again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's the way to do it. Oh, I love it here. We're aiming high here at overthinking it. You know, we're really... <laughs> dedicated to improving ourselves personally that's you know, right. these, well I'll, t- I'll tell you i was a miserable failure at my new year's resolution i was going to change the uh proportion of my screen time which had been uh heavily slanted towards television to watch some movies you know uh on the netflix 
right? And I, uh, I, yeah, I used to burn through the television DVDs at a, a pretty rapid clip, and I was going to watch some feature films and expand my uh, uh, attention span from you know 42 minutes to two or even two and a half hours with some classic films. And I was a miserable failure uh, at this. And if anything, I have only watched more and shorter television shows because I got into Weeds. And uh, more recently, I'm getting into uh, David Duchovny in uh, Californication. Uh Was that really necessary? The... David David Duchovny. Um, who was a, uh, a which is which is pretty trashy, uh, but uh, good fun all the same. So um, yes, so I, I really I've I've given up my my uh, my New Year's resolution is to stop setting goals because they they, <laughs> <laughs> they inevitably make me feel like a failure. <laughs> you can try actually succeeding. Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, he uh, he will he'll probably succeed at that, right? This is like, um, what, what's the name of the guy who is a cretin and also a liar in that right. paradox? Right, exactly. This is like him him resolving to no longer be from Crete. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. All right, I'm looking at paradoxes, the liar paradox. Where does it say here? Uh, Ep- oh, Epimenides is his name. Yeah, uh, clearly, yeah. right. Yeah. How could I have forgotten? <laughs> <laughs> uh, By the way, speaking of ancient Greeks and quickly, ancient Greeks and uh, Jersey Shore, someone was asking me at a party a couple weeks ago who the coolest guy in ancient Greece was, uh, and they said it was like uh, either Perseus or something. I was like, no, it's Milo, like the dude who lifted the calf. And as the calf gets bigger, he keeps lifting the calf. And then he, then the calf's a full-grown cow. He can lift the whole cow because he's really strong because he's been training gradually. Then he eats the cow. And I feel like that's uh, – that guy should be on the jersey shore, I think. Anyway. If you had frosted frost tip. Yeah. If there's anybody listening to this who knows how to say the situation in ancient Greek, please call them. Let us know. Or, or if you know how to say uh, schnooki in ancient Greek. <laughs> And how, how do you call? You uh, you get us on the horn at uh, podcast at overthinkingit.com or call 20 eat log zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Of course, you can always use the contact form on overthinking it or leave some comments on the show notes. We got some good comments on the last episode. I was glad that we did uh, our overthinking of the of the aughts, the oughties, the noughties. Uh, we we got some people who said that they were great, and I, I was I, that it was a great episode. I was very gratified by that because we we launched into that one with even less of a game plan than we usually have, which is not saying you don't much. have to keep saying that. You don't have to keep making apologies. I'm not making apologies. I'm I'm trumpeting our success. We are we are incredible entertainers. So it's like <laughs> we're like even when we do a cruddy job and phone it in, we're still awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically what you're saying. Well, we don't. So you should all in. be happy. I, I think we no? save the day. We pull it out at the at the very yeah. last the very last minute. Um, That's what she said. All right. So, saying. Uh, uh, um, all right. So, uh, what is what is this show? Oh, right. This this is our best of the decade show. So best <laughs> of twenty teens uh, so far. Um, definitely for me, the best of. Was has got to have been the steak sandwich that I made last night. That was a really great steak. Sandwich. Fantastic! What kind of steak did <laughs> it's you really have solid. in your sandwich? I, it, was a, it was Angus sirloin. I actually bought it at the Harvest Co-op down the street. I was like, you know, I could go buy a steak sandwich, but nay, I shall purchase steak and bread and construct a steak sandwich <laughs> from parts. Now, this was still at least $2 more expensive than it would have been if I had just gone and bought a steak sandwich, but this is a new decade with new possibilities and a bright new future for all of our people as right, we because expand. The, the, the sandwich shop can, can take advantage of economies of scale in their uh, sandwich-making activities. Well, there's no freaking high-fructose corn syrup in my sandwich. <laughs> it's probably, yeah, it's probably true. I mean, there's probably no kind of high-fructose. I mean, in the bread. Maybe. <laughs> no, I, I told you guys already what my what the favorite thing of what the best thing of 2010 was. It should be uh, you know Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. I don't think I'm going to see anything that's going to top that. Really, 
They could, I love it when you see something like a, a little bit late, so you see it in the wrong year. And so like for the rest of the year, you count it in your own list of best things of the year, even though like for everybody else, it was the previous year. Yeah. yeah. Like, like For you, Mega Shark Giant Octopus might be the best movie of 2010, even though... You know, for me, it was one of the best movies of 29. Now, Pete, speaking, we'll of, speaking of seeing things uh, a little late, I saw this weekend, I saw the Sherlock Holmes movie, though it had been released in, uh, uh, it had been released in 2009. Mm, yes, yes, yes. I saw that as well. But it was the last movie I saw in 2009. I saw it uh, the, on December 30th. So, uh, yeah, no, what do you think? I, I, um... Gosh, I left that movie thinking, well... It sounds I just... like you were assaulted. Like, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little hoarse, by the way. One of the best things that did happen to me is I went dancing and was talking with really loud music. So if I sound hoarse or my voice cracks... Uh, one, just... of the worst, one of the worst things of the decade that's happened to me is I, I got really sick about three days ago. So I... Um... I got really and the whole so, you've been sick the whole decade. Yeah, I've been sick the whole, the decade. whole decade. The whole I woke <laughs> up at the beginning of the decade sick, and it has lasted the whole decade thus far. <laughs> Jeez, man! So I'm not, yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm a little under the weather. We all we all have vocal problems today. Um, mm. Yeah, so I left Sherlock Holmes thinking, well, gosh, I wish I could watch the better, cooler movie that has Moriarty in it instead. Right? <laughs> because they, you know, it seems like it was they were just setting me up for. Uh, uh, it seems like they were just setting me up for the, the cooler movie later. Like, I didn't care about this villain. I didn't care about what he was doing. Uh, mm. You know, there were no characters to speak of. It, it was not a movie, right? In the, if, if by movie you mean What do you of, mean? It was a series of, of still pictures. No, it was, a, it was not a movie. <laughs> no, I joined them together in a moving picture. By movie, by movie, I mean something more than that. I mean, you know, something like a work of visual storytelling depicting the dramatically interesting uh, actions of a group of, of, you know, compelling characters. I mean, you're being, I think you're being harsher on it than I would be. I mean, I definitely feel like... I know that the narrative was a little bit weak, but I felt like that there were some characters. I mean, at least I thought Jude Law's character was interesting. I think the Watson interpretation was, was certainly a character. Um, he had, like, you know, characteristics and, and wants and things that he was going for. Like and decisions a, like he had a to mustache make. and a gambling problem? No, that he was he he was uh, he was sort of like conservative, but he also had kind of a he was kind of like a little bit man crushy, and he like had sort of a violent streak, but he suppressed it. I mean, like he was like um, he was proper and military, but at the same time like fun loving. Um, I thought there was a cool interplay between the way that. Um, his relation. I mean, for for Jude Law's for the Doctor Watson character, he's torn between his relationship with his fiance and his relationship with Sherlock Holmes, right? Because he likes doing the stuff that both of them like, and they sort of fight over him, and so his attitudes shift. But the character lives in a place in the middle where it was pretty believable that he would want both things: that he would want the life at home with the beautiful fiance, and that he would also want to be like going around getting in, in uh, cudgel fights. By the way, this was the best cudgel fight movie I've seen in a long time. <laughs> Lot of cudgel fighting. If you went in this movie expecting quality detective work, you were disappointed. But if you were in this movie on the expecting on the ho- on the off chance, the off off chance to get some quality nineteenth century cudgel fights with some like stra- strapping uh, longshoremen and or stevedores, like this movie yeah. is like through for you. It's like you know Oscars times ten because there was so many stevedore cudgel fights with suspenders and all sorts of other bowler hat type things. Right. Uh, yeah. Very very, very steampunk. It was pretty steampunk, definitely. Although it was also straight up steam, um, like at times without much punk. Good I mean, there point. was punk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that one of the gangster guys, or not gangsters, but one of like the thugs spoke French, and it was like not important to the plot. And he's just like that guy's French because so you know I saw, in this day and age. I saw Sherlock Holmes with uh, Matt Belinky and with Josh McNeil, uh, both okay. frequent guests on on the podcast. Uh, at the Men's Chinese Theater, or the Groman's Chinese Theater in uh, Hollywood. And, oh, wow. Um, yeah, we decided to do it up. Is that uh, like a regular movie theater that people go to, or yeah. is it like really fancy? No, it it's, not, it's not really fancy. I mean, I, well, it's huh? really fancy in that it, they charge twelve seventy five for a movie, but that's getting to be par for the course in the big cities nowadays, isn't it? Right, right, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, any, anyway, um, so we decided, we started afterwards as we were kind of debriefing uh, back at my uh, back in your abode, you back guys were debriefing back in my apartment over the movie. Yeah. That we need a like a, a think tank uh, on overthinking it about the best movies 
um, that involve diffusing a nefarious machine with seconds to spare before it does it does something terrible. And like, oh, uh, yeah. like Van Helsing came up, I think, because don't they uh, don't they have to diffuse a nefarious machine in that? No, but you mean like specifically not a modern bomb, like some sort of pre-modern, like like almost Rube Goldbergish device that exactly. needs to be like assembled. Steampunk. <laughs> you see, that was yeah, the steampunk yeah, yeah. aspect of it, right? That there were yeah. there were many many brass gears, you know, and many yeah. shiny uh, chambers into which liquid would drip, setting off a chemical reaction that would you know tip yeah. a balance over to the other side, and then. And the gears would turn and release the, the, uh, oh, I don't know. I, I don't want to. Now, my, fav- my, my favorite gear-driven nefarious machine that needs to be stopped at the last minute in cinema has got to be in the Brave Little Toaster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which, no, I, I haven't. Mean, I had it's been talked to. about. Yeah, Belinky po- posted about it on the blog like a year ago, but I actually saw that movie when I was younger. Broke my freaking heart. Love that movie. Love that movie so much. Um, and there's a, it's, you know, about a toaster who wants to go find his owner who's a college kid who's like left him behind and he moves to college. And so the toaster like teams up with other like sort of appliances and travels across the country to go find the kid and ends up like meeting other appliances that are more modern and like starts feeling down about himself and has to like realize that he's important. And there's kind of a velveteen rabbitish ideological subplot about like the fact that the guy loves him so he's important um and i mean spoilers but in the end of the movie the the kid is in a car that's being crushed by a junkyard crushing machine and the toaster throws himself suicidally into the (laughs) gears of the crushing machine to stop it so that the kid doesn't die um it's like um i i don't really remember who the villain is in this movie like who could possibly want to hurt this toaster but uh i mean i know there are like villainous machines like villainous electronic machines but they're more of a sideshow but yeah like the, the the little toaster gets like all mangled by the giant gears of this machine um and it's wow, like this this sounds a lot like terminator salvation actually not <laughs> yeah they, they stole <laughs> for the remake of gone in 60 seconds right when yeah nick cage's brother who is i think like skeet or rich or like giovanni rubisi or someone uh, uh, you know, it's getting crushed in the in the um, in the machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen Gone in sixty seconds. I went to the video store about two minutes after it came out, but oh, uh, Zane. Hey, I want to ask. You, I want to ask you guys. Going back to the steampunk thing for a second, um, because the most one of the other notable steampunk movies that I can think of is unfortunately Wild Wild West. So I wonder how Sherlock Holmes compares to said Will Smith vehicle, and if it does steampunk better than that. Well, it's probably not saying a lot if it does steampunk better than Wild Wild West. Well, I mean, there. I don't know. What do you guys think? What do you think, Matt? What do you think? It Jordan, was, you uh, haven't seen it. Well, it, uh. it doesn't have a. It doesn't have the same aspirations of doing sort of quasi modern uh, technology. A quasi modern technology with, uh, you, you know, with uh, the antique parts, right? Mm. It's more. It's more. Uh, it's more about um, oh, it's more about what could realistically have happened, except for the nefarious machine at the end. I mean, the nefarious machine at the end is a crock, right? Yeah, no, it, yeah. Can, yeah, can yeah. we talk it, about? Yeah. Can we talk about what what it is like? Uh, the machine. Yeah, I mean, I don't, at this point, I don't think anybody. I mean, if you are worried about the end of Sherlock Holmes, I mean, I guess you really shouldn't be because it's not really a spoiler. And like, the only reason you want to watch the movie is because of the banter between Jude Law and Robert Downey Jr. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Because that's yeah. Like, and the casual fights, casual fights. What? <laughs> well, yeah. The, the um, you know, are they going to stop the nefarious machine? I mean, spoiler alert: they do. Right? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, the um, the the thing is, how does he? How did he figure it out? And that was all. That was all sort of saved till the end, wasn't it? Like in a in a. A sort of a weird ex- explanation, um, a voiceover explanation. Oh, I, we should talk about some of the stylization of this movie. But uh, okay, so the 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 the. Um, the well, I mean, I'll tell you what the I'll tell you what the problem is. One of the big problems. Are you saying something about the machine, or? Well, yeah, the machine. Okay, so it's a it's a, a gas, a poison gas, cyanide machine, and they're going to yeah. gas Parliament uh, right. in a um, in an elaborately constructed plot that turns out to be. Uh, that has elements of the supernatural, but it turns out to be that 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 uh, too is is part of the part of the hocus pocus around it. Anyway, um, it's going to be like a terrorist machine, right? Uh, and they're going to like gas all the House of Parliament and take over England and rule it, you know, with an iron fist. Right. 
even though like you don't it's like it's not like the tribe and the postman where like if you kill like the leader you get to be the leader of the country necessarily like if you kill parliament it's not necessarily the case that the rest of the country is going to listen to what you say right i mean yeah oh yeah Talk there is the still problem. a king What's presumably there's still a king out there somewhere who's the king of england who probably would be somewhat relevant to deciding who's going to run the country if parliament died right um, well but i mean this is this is like saying that a bond villain's plan is not actually a practical way like a goldfinger turning all of the gold in fort knox radioactive would not in fact bring down the u.s financial system <laughs> but like goldfinger is also insane so right. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't worry about it so much well, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess. I mean, it's – here's my, my, my disappointment with it, Matt, and I, I agree with you that this moment is really disappointing. And part of why it's disappointing is that building up into this point, there's been some times where there's been hints at a rather interesting um, struggle between analytics and mysticism, right, between the sort of like – Let's investigate the world and figure out how it works that right. Sherlock Holmes represents, and this whole like I come from an ancient order of from people thousands of years old, and we have like magical powers, right? Um, and and it's a really dull and overdone way of resolving it, which is that like it's all parlor tricks. Well, that, right? you see, that was the spoiler that that I wasn't that I was. Oh, not I'm sorry. Able. Well, no, that's okay. Yeah, it turns out that 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 all the hocus pocus is a crock, right? Yeah, that it's not supernatural at all, and everything yeah. has yeah. some. Sign of you know some kind of explanation. Though the guy seems to have come back from the dead, he didn't actually come back from the dead. Yeah, I mean, this, I is, don't... Uh, What's this is standard for Sherlock Holmes, though, isn't it? I mean, the most famous Sherlock Holmes story is Hound of the Bells, right? Yeah. And that's exactly the plot. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it hadn't occurred to me. Um, that yeah, I guess it is like very classic of Sherlock Holmes. I guess it's kind of irobotish in that like <laughs> the story doesn't really resemble the actual story, but it borrows a lot of elements from other stories that the guy wrote. I don't remember Sherlock Holmes stories being these kind of like um, suspenseful mysteries um, that that people I've been hearing complaining that this movie is not right. Like like Holmes's powers of observation are so considerable that the the obstacles that he runs into don't tend to be of the sort that I would feel lead to like sort of long drawn out suspenseful movies with like lots of twists and turns right like he needs to relentlessly pursue his person and I mean he's a fairly vigorous fellow and he knows how to box so I don't mind he does some boxing um I mean I didn't think it was unfaithful but that's another element I hadn't thought of that yeah like well was it was it unfaithful in this sense um in in at no point does he say uh elementary dear Watson and at no point does he say uh, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Mm. Well, I think that Holmes never says elementary dear Watson in the stories. <laughs> it's, just it's, one of those things, it's one of those things like played in Sam, that like we think that Holmes says, but he doesn't. And we think that Bogey says that in Casablanca, but he never does. And he also never wears the deer spotter or whatever that kind of hat is in the book. <laughs> yeah. He only wears it in the old movies. Uh, I love that. For that I love that X Men esque line in the beginning of the movie where they're like, "Oh, did you get a new hat?" He's like, "Yup, I like it. Awesome. We're not going to discuss the hat anymore." <laughs> <laughs> I did like. He's got this little Bruce Willis hat. This little like early this eighties Bruce Willis pork pie hat that he wears yes. in the movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but I think that that's that's an interesting. It's an interesting piece. Just stepping back just a little bit, like. I, I get frustrated when they, people set up these things, and this is sort of like Lost Syndrome, although not as much recently I've heard, more like Battlestar Galactica Syndrome, and maybe even to an extent like Soprano Syndrome as we headed into the last season of that show, where like you, the writers get a lot of credit for trying to build up um, mystery and build up a, a, a problem that seems to have no foreseeable solution, um, and, and they build up a lot of details around it, and you're sort of expecting how is all these this conflation of mysticism and reality going to play out in the case of Battlestar Galactica, um, and and it, it's like oh it doesn't you know oh <laughs> no sorry nothing happens we don't know what happened movie's over show's over now you make a good point Jordan which I hadn't thought of when I started ranting um, which is that it is kind of characteristic of Sherlock Holmes that this happens but like the way that they show it like, I don't really believe it you know like, I don't believe that like the, the way that they show the guy's death like I, I don't really believe that that at the time at least or even like retrospectively that it, that, that was a faked death you know what I mean? You know, this is an interesting thing. Um, 
H.P. Lovecraft, the great horror short, uh, short story writer and colossal racist, has this interesting <laughs> nonfiction book that he wrote called... Uh, so, wait, so Cthulhu sleeps, but he like has his own bathroom. He doesn't let colored Cthulhu's go to. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, really ugly stuff. But anyway, he has this, uh, this nonfiction book that he wrote called Supernatural Horror in Literature, where he... Um, he talks about this phenomenon, and it seems like there's a historical point before which English-language horror stories never were allowed to have a supernatural element in them. And uh, what happens is that, I mean, it's referred to as gaslighting, is when you have uh, somebody who is running some kind of con that involves making people believe that... Uh, there's a supernatural element where in fact there isn't one and the explanations get more and more contrived to the points where you get stories where it's far more unbelievable that somebody would have been able to pull off this scam than that there are actually ghosts yeah (laughs) well it's the plot of every scooby-doo episode right is against like right yeah yeah Um, yeah and uh, and and I mean, he is somebody who thinks that supernatural horror is like a great thing. So he says it's a really wonderful moment when you finally start getting stories where you're allowed to have the supernatural actually be supernatural. But again, I feel like uh, what you're saying that um, you can't really believe that. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, the movie, that these supernatural events weren't supernatural. Like, again, go back, look at The Hound of the Baskervilles. I mean, the, the plot there, if I remember right, it's been a while since I read it, is that they smeared a dog with phosphorus <laughs> so that it would run around outside the guy's house and make him think he was being haunted by a, a hellhound. And I mean, I don't know if you've ever had a dog, like, let out on somebody's property. You can't predict where the dog is going to go. Uh, <laughs> right, I mean, right, right. Even even if the dog is not on fire, which is <laughs> right, like yeah. placing bets, trying to to ensure your financial security by betting on where the dog is going to be at any particular moment when you go to the window, is not a really great way to make money. Right, right, right. right. So yeah, so I mean, the the Hound of Baskervilles is also notable, isn't it? Is it the only novel length Sherlock Holmes story? Or are there other ones that are novel length? I mean, I think of it There's as the only one. There's another one called one. The, uh, the Sign of Four, or The Sign of the Four, that I think is, right. is of a comparable length. But the, the other but ones they're are mostly a lot shorter. Short yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and it, it does fall short, I think, in a lot of ways in terms of like having the underpinning structure and believability to sustain that long a narrative. I mean, it feels a little bit Encyclopedia Brownish at times, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> now, if they made an Encyclopedia Brown movie, which had lots of cudgel fights, that would be great. Like, <laughs> be all just fighting. How funny would it be if they made an Encyclopedia Brown movie with no mystery and it's all action? And like Encyclopedia yeah. Brown is just like punching people. And, um, and, and, then and he's awesome people. with the ladies as well. He's, yeah. he's got to be all the ladies. Yeah, he, totally at, at the end, uh, he and Sally Kimball share a big old kiss and ride off into the sunset on motorcycles. Shia, Shia LaBeouf is... <laughs> oh, oh, you went there! In oh, Wikipedia Brown. <laughs> it's like, he, he claimed that he was French, but... Did you know that France stopped being a country in 2004? <laughs> 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 Wikipedia Brown it is. Uh, I, I was sitting on a gold mine here. Let's we are. Um, uh, oh, man. so, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about this supernatural thing a little more. Like, um, in, in Scooby-Doo, which I, I think is, is profound and great art, uh, for this, re- <laughs> for this reason, before Scrappy, before Scrappy, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. The pre, the pre-Scrappy Scooby Doo. Because what yeah. it is is it's it's an allegory of uh, of the five college consortium in Western Massachusetts. <laughs> it's, an, it's an allegory of uh, childlike credulity, right, and the magic that grown-ups seem to work with the world, and. Um, and uh, and the the other kind of magic, which is when they can kind of pull back the curtain and and reveal the the explanations of things. And so the um, right the Scooby Doo stories are in essence stories of disillusionment, you know, mm-hmm. uh, stories of of how as we grow we become less naive and less naively credulous. I think. Yeah. So there should be a Scooby-Doo where it's like, wait a minute, Santa Claus is really old man Terwilliger who ran the haunted amusement park. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, exactly, right? Like, that's... Uh, um, that's that would be the worst Christmas special ever. <laughs> <laughs> wait a 
minute. Wait a minute. The government isn't actually trying to protect my best interest. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Nixon like, says it would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, like on the board of directors of General Electric. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, so wait, so Halliburton didn't even bid on these contracts. <laughs> yeah. So wait, so but did the Scooby Doo movie capture any of this? Or do you think? <laughs> oh, you know what? I'm not the Sarah Michelle Geller uh, Stifler Scooby Doo movie. Wait, is yeah, Stifler in this Scooby Doo movie? Was Matthew he... Lillard is in that. Oh, okay. Matthew. Yeah, who I always I always say I, his name I Lillard. Not, I'm unfamiliar. Uh, with this. Familiar? There's two of them. There's with, two Scooby-Doo movies with no, no, Sarah no, Michelle Gellar. Yeah, yeah, with what? these films. I, I did not watch these films. Oh. I saw That's part right. Of you on, watch television. What? <laughs> yeah, I saw part of one on TV once, and kind of the funny thing that they did was they had the monsters turn out to be real. <laughs> oh. Man. So, yeah, so which, which adaptation do you think is the most faithful then? The Sherlock Holmes one, the Scooby-Doo one, the Harriet the Spy one? This is the thing that I wanted, that I wanted to, to say, right? Like the, so the, um, the unmasking of, of Supernatural, the Supernatural and the Holmes stories is probably related to, to the British Empire, you know, and its dominion over many things. Right and like you know, God's in His heaven, all's right with the world. The sun never sets in the British Empire, and and Sherlock Holmes uh, shows us that there's no there's no real mystery as, as long as you can see the clues. Um, but this uh, this film wasn't really didn't have any of that metaphorical weight at all. That that, that was my problem with it, Pete. Really, there, there was no weight. You know, maybe mm. maybe the Watson stuff, but Watson is is the second banana. You know, Holmes enters the movie exactly the same as when he he exits it. Like there, there's no real change in in the. Can, guy's can, can I just point? Out, can I just seven and point out here that um, we are criticizing a Guy Ritchie movie for not having metaphorical weight along the lines <laughs> of Scooby Doo. That's what I just want. I just want to put that out there. That's right. Read the website URL, man. <laughs> this is my job. This is what I do. <laughs> You're like going down the Jersey Shore and being like, guys, all we do is hang out in the Jersey Shore. Like, why don't we try going other places? It's like, no, that's not what we do here. <laughs> going over to Point Pleasant. Like, come on. Let's do like, like, hey, Scoob. Let's check Let's. Let's figure out the, the disillusionment of the American soul, Scoob. The mystery machine. Dude, man, look, that's why we exist, is because this is actually happening. And I know that it's an easy cop-out to claim it isn't happening so that you don't have to talk about it. But we do the difficult thing here. Here at Overthinking, we make sacrifices. And we go into the teeth of the defense, and we play our hearts out every game. Whether it's Scooby-Doo that we're trying to break down, or, or Harriet the Spy, which I mentioned before but haven't seen. But that's not going to stop me from talking about it. What a great movie it is. Uh, uh, what was I talking about? I would say, this isn't necessarily a fair criticism of your point, uh, Matt, because I'm, what I'm going to say is that I don't think that the Sherlock Holmes stories have a whole lot of weight either. Mm. That doesn't mean, though, that the movie can be excused for being a little bit featherweight, right? Like, I mean, maybe they should have made a good movie regardless of what the source material was, but it's not like Holmes, the character, really arcs over the course of one story or even over uh, the course yeah, of okay, all the fair stories. Fair enough. I mean, fair enough. But I, I, am, well, like, I am with you in that, like, art should be good, you know? Don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> Here, I mean, here's the thing: Sherlock Holmes, formulaically speaking, is a buddy cop movie. Um, then that's that's the genre that it is. It's sure. about the yeah, but of course, the Sherlock Holmes stories aren't really buddy cop stories, right? I mean, I guess sort of, but like the Holmes Watson relationship is different. But yeah, but I mean, like the the relationship between Holmes and the villains in the movie. No, no, no. Holmes is, is, is really... Holmes is the Danny Glover. Uh, no, Watson is the Danny Glover, right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, Holmes, yeah. Holmes is, is, the, the, is the Mel Gibson. Gibson. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, he's done the same thing Mel Gibson always does, which is like the girl that he sometimes sleeps with, he is like marginally more fond of if she's still alive. Right. And it's like, yeah, maybe I'll hang out with you and we'll have breakfast. And like, no, he's not going to. But um, <laughs> like, but like for a moment, it seems possible because he's been physically exhausted to the point where he can't run away from her anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, although that's does, most- does, does Watson what? at any point say, I'm too old for the shit? 
No, no. They do say that in Star Trek Insurrection, though. <laughs> that's different. Um, so, um, so can we talk about this as a Guy Ritchie movie? Like, is anyone familiar with the oeuvre? Oh, like Snatch and Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Lockstock, Snatch, uh, Rock and Rolla more recently. I haven't seen that, yeah, but I'm a big yeah. fan of Snatch and Two Lockstock, which are two very, obviously, very but specific. But you didn't see Holmes, did case. you? No, I did not. I have not seen Holmes. Now, here's, I, I think certain things, like the, um, the narrative, uh, I, w- there, there are moments when uh, Holmes will kind of explain a chain of deductive logic or explain a, like a, a causal a sequence of events. Like, I'm going to do this, and then the reaction will be this, and I'll counter with a this, and I'll do this, right? And then uh, these things are played out in slow motion, and then you go back and see the whole thing in fast motion. And that's, that's a Guy Ritchie moment, right? There are moments like that in Snatch, where, you, uh, where the chronology goes a little wonky, and there's a, there's a voiceover explaining what's going on, right? Right. I mean, whenever I see scenes like that, what I think of is the old early millennial uh, uh, CGI cartoon Action Man, if you ever watched that. Uh, it was a British CGI cartoon about an extreme sports star who fights crime with a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> and it's as good as it sounds. Um, and like, and this is from this is a Bullet Time era piece, right? So, so combining it with Bullet Time, like Action Man will be like on a snowboard, right? And he sees that there's a bad guy coming, and all of a sudden the scene will freeze, and you'll hear like, "It's time for action!" as he like cuts to the various elements of the environment that are going to be used in like the unlikely stunt that action man is going to pull off to foil the bad guy. And so like, that's what I, when I always think of, uh, when I see th- scenes like that, I always think of like action man. And also they have like protractors show up on the screen for no reason. And like mathematical calculations that don't mean anything like mm-hmm. also pop up next to the object. So it's like, I'm going to kick this branch and it's going to fly over there and hit like the trap door on this birdhouse. It's going to fall over and like hit the guy. So he trips and he crashes into the tree. Right. And like, that's how I'm going to defeat you and then the guys in the helicopter are going to be like yes and they fist pump because that's what people always do in that kind of situation <laughs> but, um, I mean I don't know because like it seems very bullet time like very like um, but fast lane did that too sometimes I think maybe where like you know but I don't know uh, maybe maybe is it is when is Snatch from when is the Guy Ritchie stuff come around like I, I, I remember seeing Snatch but I honestly only half watched it I was on the computer most of the time it's one of those movies I rented when I was working at an Applebee's and and I just I didn't really have the energy to watch the whole thing. I think they're the earlier part of this decade, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean that would place it with the Applebee's job. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Snatch 2000, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels 1998. Oh, okay, okay. Now wait, Jordan, wait a minute, Jordan. Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels is an important movie for us. Do you remember why? No. Okay, the reason Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels is an important movie for us is because when we were in college, we were given a choice. On a Wednesday night, when we were together with the other trombone players, because um, Jordan and I used to play trombone together. Oh, yes. And we were oh, given yes, a choice. And it was a, it was a democracy. It was a vote. We had a choice that we, could, we were going to watch a movie. And are you going to watch Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, or are you going to watch Black, Black Dog? Dog. <laughs> Black Dog. And Black Dog won, I believe, by one vote. Um, <laughs> vote well, one, one of our votes. <laughs> Yeah, one of our votes was definitely like one of the deciding votes for Black Dog. Of course, Black Dog being the best movie ever made, starring Patrick Swayze and Meatloaf about trucks. Um, and it's, a, um, it's a spectacular, spectacular piece of truck porn um, about like a guy who needs to go on one last trucking run to save his house from being foreclosed on. And that guy is Patrick Swayze and like Randy Travis is in it, the, the country singer. It's one of those things where um, you can see the machinery of how movie plots work sustaining a movie that doesn't really deserve to be sustained. Yeah, exactly. Like, for instance, in the beginning of a plot, you establish that a character has certain skills, and then later on, those skills become important. So it's, uh, it's established early in the movie that Patrick Swayze is the best trucker on, like, the face <laughs> of the earth. And sure enough, later on, there's a scene where he's able to, uh, to outrun the bad guys because he understands how to break when he's taking a truck down a hill better yeah. than they do. And they end up flying off the road and exploding. <laughs> 
It's got really good lessons about trucking in it. You should really yes. watch it for that, if for nothing else. Um, it also has a soundtrack by George S. Clinton, which made me laugh when it came up. With the other <laughs> but, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, speaking, it's, there's something I wanted to ask you guys who have seen Holmes about Holmes that Black Dog brings up. You may remember that in Black Dog, there was some really over-the-top homoerotic tension between the two cops in Black Dog. <laughs> I want to like how homoerotic is the Holmes Watson relationship. Uh, well, this was the interesting thing that I saw about it, thought about it, was that the Holmes-Watson relationship is pretty clearly, at least to me, based on the House-Wilson relationship. Right. right? Uh-huh. And then House and Wilson are in turn based on Holmes and Watson. Um, right. Who I think, and like, who then are based on other people who may or may not have been doctors in real life. Um, but yeah, but it's like, I feel like it definitely is homoerotic, at least by association, our extension. Um, I mean, he certainly misses him and doesn't want him to move out of his house. He doesn't want to be left alone. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Matt? You're usually good. Yeah, but they load them both up. They load them both up with love interests. I mean, Watson Mm -hmm. with the fiance and Holmes with a a sort of, uh, what the one who got away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're like, uh, it's like super bad. Where, like, the two guys end up with the girls and they have to say goodbye to each other because they're going off with the ladies to go do the lady thing that guys do when they're with ladies, which someone tells me they're going to teach me about someday. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, there's that longing scene in the end of Superbad when he's going down the escalator. Yeah, you know what I mean? That's a yeah, great, he looks that, back. Yeah. That's a yeah, great is, scene about, about growing up. That's, I mean, yeah, that, just that, that, that yeah. shot expresses so much about, you know... Um, yeah. I don't know, becoming a man and putting away childish things like, you know, I don't know, checking out your friends Johnson. <laughs> Look, man, I can write as many blog entries about My Little Ponies as I want. I can stop. <laughs> this is not a, not a problem, all right? This is, this is totally natural. You know, I read, um, some, I read some criticism of Paradise Lost uh, once, which, if, <laughs> if, if you'll recall, is... Uh, Does someone call it gay? He's like, this, this poem is gay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that was, that was the gist of it in, in yeah. so many words. <laughs> Except it Sorry. was uh, it was written from less a uh, kind of schoolyard bully perspective and more of a you know uh, right thinking liberal identity politics perspective, but um, you know the gist of it was uh, that Eve is just uh, an excuse for Adam and God to spend more time together, you know. So <laughs> the the, the, uh, the the dynamic that was proposed was I think called the homosocial love triangle, where the mm-hmm. uh, the the two men have a relationship. With one another through the medium of the woman. Mm. Anyway, which I mean, maybe maybe that's nonsense in Paradise Lost, but there are some places where you can see that really pretty clearly. No, it's a, it's actually not that. I mean, if you read certain scenes in Paradise Lost, it's not that far fetched. Like it's, yeah. you know what I mean? It's not totally off the wall. Mm. I think Milton would have thought it was totally off the wall, but you know, Milton. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So are we saying that uh, that Adam and God are the first bromance? in a way bromance is actually a much more christian concept than romance is. in a way in a way in a way of course you know how i say it, but in a way <laughs> in a way it means everything you're about to say or just said is false but um like in a way kirk cobain is still alive with all of us is the example that I always give. Actually, I was reading about something on Wikipedia the other day. So this is, I mean, saying that I read about it on Wikipedia probably marks it as false more than saying in a way first. But apparently in the the ancient Greek church, there was a ceremony, a sacrament similar to marriage that you could go with, go through with your platonic bro friend. Huh. Really? And what was, what did you guys, did you like hold hands and stuff? I mean, you were you you sort of like pledged yourself to each other as life partners, but there wasn't. Uh, Wait, the I mean, people go back and forth as as to whether this was a um, a gay marriage or whether there was no erotic component to this, and this was purely bros who were right. sort of pledging to be there each other's helpmeet and spiritual, you know, mm-hmm. heterosexual life mate. Mm-hmm. Now, is is um. Do you mean in the Greek Christian church, or was this more like... The Greek ancient? Christian church, ah. like I think pre, pre-Great Schism, I want to say, like really back there. Wow. But um, I don't, I'll, I'll find the article again, and we'll post it in the, the, the podcast notes yeah, or listeners, whatever. Yeah, listeners, you know anything about that? Um, well, they can't talk back to me. No, right I, now. that's why I wondered, <laughs> I, wondered about the, I wondered about the silence. You know, right in. Or, I, I can't um, really find anything when I search for Greek Christian church bromance. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Lord knows why. 
<laughs> well, if we if we make that the title of the podcast, then we will have something to. It leads me to a German website about the Foo Fighters. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, uh, Pete, you want to talk about Up in the Air at all? Oh, yeah, I loved Up in the Air. I mean, that was the other movie that I saw right as the year was coming to a close. Um, and I mentioned it while we were planning because I thought that was really cool and had a lot of cool things to talk about. I mean, some people might have a problem with un- overthinking it because it's, you know, it deserves the, uh, the criticism that we would be giving it, the scrutiny we would be giving it. Sure. It's There's no sports. explosions. Uh, I don't think there are any explosions, which is strange because it, there's a lot more of high explosive in the general vicinity of the main character in Up in the Air than there is in, because uh, he flies in airplanes, you see, than there is for Sherlock Holmes, who lives in Victorian London. Um, but uh, there shouldn't be a lot of, I guess there should be explosions. It's like gunpowder, so. you know, or something. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, Up in the Air is a great movie. Did anybody else here see it? Yeah. Or is it just much me? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, I saw, I saw it as well, and I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely liked it. I, I actually saw it... Um, I saw it with a girl, and I don't know if she's listening to this podcast, um, but she she was pretty horrified by it. Um, she was like, luke- not in, oh, not even what? lukewarm, like pretty much against it. She was like, "Wow, like that was depressing." You know, it was her reaction as we were leaving. Oh, like, well. wow, that was a depressing movie. I was like, "No way!" Like, I feel like that movie really spoke to me, you know, uh, and and sort of hit both sides. I, you know what? I compare Up in the Air favorably with Hitch which is a movie that I rag on constantly as being an archetypical terrible movie. And you know why I always rag on it, which is that it establishes something really cool in the first hour of the movie, and then it spends the last 45 minutes of the movie repudiating everything about it so that it comes around to a place that's, like, socially acceptable for Hollywood. Right, right, right. And that's what, that's, I mean, that's the interesting thing. And again, you know, spoiler alert for Up in the Air, I guess. But George Clooney thinks he's in Hitch, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it turns out yeah. that he's in a different kind of movie. Yeah, like George Clooney, he plays, I mean, for those of you not familiar, George Clooney plays a consultant who travels around the country um, firing people. Companies hire him to fire employees, but he does it as sort of like a positive, we're going to give you career counseling, like this is the first step in your journey, Um, you get a packet. Uh, and he's also a motivational speaker who talks about leaving behind the attachments in your life and um, and sort of moving forward uh, with with sort of greater ease because your backpack is empty is the metaphor he always uses is backpack what's in your right. backpack and then it's like oh he's falling in love you know George Clooney is falling in love what does this mean about his whole philosophy about being unattached to people like oh George Clooney like he spends time with his family now like what does this mean oh what it probably means because it's a Hollywood movie is that all this stuff about attachments in your life holding you back and keeping you from moving around and being dangerous to your survival uh, you know, are all bunk. And the real truth is that even if you don't have a job, it's better to be with your family in northern Wisconsin than to be jet-setting around the world with fancy clothes and beautiful women and all that other stuff. Um, and the movie does not... I mean, I don't know if I really want to spoil this one as hardcore as I spoiled the last one, because I feel like it's less likely that our audience has seen this movie. Um, but um, Or at least... I have, feel like we haven't given them a fair chance. It's not in quite, yeah. It's not in quite as wide release, you know. Yeah, but it does not come down strongly in the endorsement of this. Like, like it definitely like plays both sides, and it does not come out hitch wise at the end. Like, yeah, no, it's it it. Yeah, yeah it really. Yeah. Uh, no, I liked I liked the ending a lot, and I think. Hold on, that, let, let me let me jump in here, and I'll, without spoiling the end here, right? So I think we can say that George Clooney's hard driving character. You know, it seems like he may be coming around something else, but he actually doesn't. And we'll, we'll kind of, is, that, is that an accurate statement? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll about, say it's he, particularly about attachment and family and all these kinds of things. I mean, he arcs like his character arcs and has a different attitude about things, but he doesn't end up with the benefits that you would think you would get from. Right. Things. So his character arcs. But I would say, you know, the movie is you're right. It's trying to play both things, but it, it very explicitly through the mouths of characters at the end of the movie, not major characters, but minor characters says that family and having people around you are important. I mean, it's like it beats you over the head with it at the end there. Yeah. Um, which, uh, that, I'm sure it came out that way, and I think it's, it is kind of making a Norman a statement in that way, but it doesn't go back and make an apology for George Clooney's character in the way that he lives his life. It kind of just presented like that's yeah. kind of is what it is, but there's this also thing that he's missing out on here still. I mean, but he's not able to attain it, though. I think it was probably the most important part of the movie. Yeah. I mean, he basically goes from being, like, pretty happy but sort of vaguely unsatisfied with this sort of back portion of his brain to being, like, profoundly lonely, <laughs> right? Like, and, and sort of, like, 
not profoundly, but being like pretty solidly lonely and like really be, having a pretty firm sense for what he's missing and what he doesn't have. Right. But like, there's no sense that he would have those things because I mean, what is he doing but traveling around and like breaking down families and like tearing people apart? You know, like ruining people's livelihoods. Um, it's constantly. But he's not on. doing that though directly. Well, no, no, it's, no, he's not doing it directly. But it's not. But that, he's yeah, it's the agent. Fair, I mean, he's the agent of it. Even he, if he doesn't even matter it. whether he's the agent of it. He knows it's happening. Like, he knows it's a fact of existence. And what does he say? My, one of my favorite lines from the movie is when he said, "Well, there's a lot of good lines in the movie." Is when he says, "Like, you know, what? We don't stand still. Like, we always have to keep moving." Right. I don't forget what he compares people to. to basically, to. he says, "Live every week like it's Shark Week." Exactly. He says, like, <laughs> that's exactly what he says. He says, "Like we're, says we're, we're sharks. sharks. Human beings are sharks, and if we if we we have to keep moving if we want to survive." Which in like the contemporary corporate, you know, workplace is definitely true. Um, that you have to keep moving. You have to be flexible. You can't rely on you know the next meal coming from the same place as the last meal. You have to work your hardest at what you're doing, but at the same time, you have to be ready to jump if you need to. Um, and I mean, it sort of says something about the ir- what, it, what it does say something about the unreconciled aspects of our own culture and the interaction between our family life and the way that the rhythm of our work you know tends to prompt us to live. Um, and it also says something about happiness. And sort of the different ways that you can pursue happiness and what works and what doesn't. Um, I loved, loved the conversations between, like, the 23-year-old and, like, the 43-year-old about relationships. Yeah. Oh, they were so brilliant. Oh, man, they were great. I was laughing my butt off for that one. Those ones, definitely. Um, Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to talk briefly about the economic message of of the movie. And that was probably the most powerful thing to me about it Mm -hmm. in that – it really shows the, the devastation that's caused by people losing jobs. And we think about that being multiplied um, millions of times across the country. Um, you really stop and think and you kind of – you feel bad for America and not to sound like a, a, a modern politician. And one of the reasons why this really spoke directly to me and without getting too much into what I do for professional life, it basically – it has a lot to do with hundreds of thousands of people, uh, hundreds, tens of thousands of people who um, are out of work. And are looking for work. And what I do, uh, I don't work directly with these people, but the work that I do does directly impact these people. And well, Mark is a pimp, actually, is what he does. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> sorry, man. Mark is not a pimp. A municipal, a a municipal government pimp. That would be, that would be something else. Um, yeah, well. <laughs> um, Zone gets a zoning also mean now, doesn't it? <laughs> you, you have to accept the lowest bid contract, right? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if any of our I don't know if any of our podcast listeners are um, or you know what 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 are your employment statuses out there? We would like to know, um, especially because we're trying to sell you advertisements. Um, are you pimps? <laughs> you going to ask, are you unemployed? <laughs> if you if you're feeling like a pimp, go and uh, brush your shoulders off. Uh, women's is pimps too. You can go and brush your shoulders off. Uh, something is something. Baby, no, I don't know the rest of this song get that dirt off your shoulder and all that stuff Um, but i mean i remember reading about that in in college and learning about that in college classes in sociology and in economic development mark how much um how it's not symmetrical uh and you know i i love symmetry how it's how the damage of job loss is like so much greater to the people who in communities that suffer job loss than the sort of moving of resources is to like the general economy right there's this sort of classic economic view of unemployment and reemployment that it's sort of you're selling your your labor to one person now you go and you sell your labor to somebody else or if you can't get a deal on it then like you try to do something else and that there isn't an inclusion a lot of these economic ideas of the real impact on you know families and social fabrics but you're talking about people you know even productivity and people's ability to take care of themselves like job losses are really can be a really devastating thing um i mean i know i've been laid off at least once and it didn't it wasn't a lot of fun but i didn't have a family so it wasn't really that much of a problem for so me the, the i mean the and this is really you know hit really hard in the movie and not in a bad way i mean that as a as a criticism by including the interviews with with the actual people the non-actors uh, and then the non-scripted kind of talking head interviews that they do with people who have lost their jobs. And they end up using only one or two sentences um, from each each interview. But they have, you know, they have common themes. And one of them is like, you know, actually the, the money part was not the worst part. Like the livelihood part wasn't the worst part. The, the worst part was kind of not knowing what to do with myself when I got up in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know? And that that's... Uh, 
you know, that's that's just a sort of a, a terrible kind of personal situation to be in. See, that's why you have to start a non-profitable website so that um, <laughs> you can never get fired. <laughs> no, do not do. start a website. We want <laughs> less competition. This is why you read overthinking it because we have something new and time consuming for you every day. Right. Um, pretty much. Yes, yeah, you exactly. can read you can read the back. We have like something like 750 back posts, you know. Yeah. You can read through the site starting at its beginning, you know, in January 22nd, 2008. Uh we're coming up on the 2 year mark actually. Mm. How, do you want to, how do you want to celebrate? What do you think we should do, listeners? Email or Mark, uh, Mark can you get some right of in. can you get us the hookup, Mark? Some of the- <laughs> Apparently, I can. Okay, I've just been informed of this. Uh, right. can, can we can we get like the the over under when uh when rather first contacted you about the potential existence of this website? How long did you think it would last before we all lost interest? <laughs> in <the winter? laughs> I'd say three months is my is my over under on. That. I was I was uh, I was optimistic. I thought six months. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very, I mean, you know, I. We congratulate ourselves a lot on this podcast for comedic effect, but I am stunned and awed by the fact that we're still actually like doing this. <laughs> and we we had a half million people come to our website last year. Yeah. Half million people. Right? Well, see that that, that surprises me less than the fact that we will still have a post, <laughs> you know, on Monday. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah One last thing. It sounds like a wrap going up, but on I want- Monday. It's it's uh, Simpsons week on overthinkingit.com. Uh and mm. I uh, perhaps perhaps hastily, perhaps prematurely declared the coming week to be Simpsons week uh without really asking the writers if they had anything that they wanted to say about <laughs> the Simpsons. And um and so we're we're uh, fortunately, I, I think we'll we'll you know field a full team uh, of articles this week. But uh, you know, it was it was it's actually kind of worth overthinking a little bit, like why why there is kind of thinking about The Simpsons fatigue now as a cultural phenomenon. The Simpsons has as many you know ersatz philosophy books about it as The Matrix has, you know, or, or more, or you know, religious books or, or what have you. Anyway, I, I stomped on you, Mark. What were you about to say? No, I just actually wanted to say one last thing about it up in the air before we left that the subject completely. Um, just very quickly about um, George Clooney. I was wondering if you guys consider that something of, a, uh, of, of a, an instance of metacasting in mm. which George Clooney is cast and we bring a lot of assumptions about George Clooney into it, mm. um, particularly about competence, stuff, you know, suaveness. I guess I was thinking a lot about his character from Ocean's Eleven. If, if uh, um, maybe not the, so much the emotional attachment parts, but more about um, his just the calm coolness and competence. Uh, the same way in which he's able to pull off the, uh, and organize a heist is similar to uh, you know the way in which he's able to uh, fire someone with the greatest of ease, mm. make it look easy. I mean, I definitely felt like there was metacasting going on in a whole bunch of levels there. Uh, the most telling moment about it for me is when um, George Clooney is – he goes on the road and he's partnered with this 23-year-old girl. And she's talking to her boyfriend on the phone about oh, it. Oh, yeah. And she says that like, no, God, he's old. Like I don't think of him that way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and he looks at himself in the mirror as well too, which is yeah. moment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, since so much of the movie is about obsolescence and like people losing their jobs, like that's sort of the the sort of um, the, the the cold chill of the re- passing Reaper for George Clooney being like in his own em- employment in the future. But um, but yeah, I mean, you would expect that George Clooney is going to be getting girls left and right in this movie, and like it, it doesn't necessarily play out that way. And I think the fact that it is George Clooney makes that more meaningful. Mm-hmm. So definitely. Also, his bat suit has nipples on it. Also, I mean, when young MC when young MC appears in a movie, I have certain expectations about what he's going to do. Um, and in this movie, he fulfilled them. He fulfilled them. <laughs> he's going to sing "Bust a Move." Is what he's going to do if he appears in the movie, and that is in fact what he did in this movie. But that was, uh, I mean, that was perfect. Right. Oh yeah. Like that at was like amazing. a second or third tier corporate offsite weekend, yeah. right? Like yep. morale or training weekend or something like that. That the party would have young MC doing the corporate gig. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a, what a great that. name! What a great name for this movie too, right? Young MC, and you see him, and he's not young. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, nobody's gonna lay off young MC. 
<laughs> He's too big to fail, man. Too big to fail. The next time we have a, uh, a a poetry parody theme week, I want us to do like "Ode to an Athlete Dying Young" MC. <laughs> I know, I know that we've succeeded at this whole overthinking it thing because of the phrase. The next time we have a poetry parody, <laughs> that's you know, I just uh, I love that we've created a, a safe space for that that. <laughs> that, that a safe space for, a safe um, space for trying to find a rhyme for Dalzin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, do you have a rhyme? You uh, you know, write us podcast at overthinkingit.com or call the voicemail twenty eat log zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Oh, I want to hear suggestions about what the uh, what the podcast should do for. Um, for uh, uh, the, the second anniversary. We're also going to come up on, I think, episode 100 uh, pretty soon. So, you know, if you have thoughts about that, don't hesitate to uh, let us know about them. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, any other news? No, it's a new year. Enjoy it. <laughs> Hope you have a great 2010. We'll be here every week with the podcast. We haven't missed a week so far. Uh, two holiday seasons now we've, we've gone through. Uh, so for everyone, you know, Happy New Year. See you next week. Uh, but until then, you can find out all about us and about The Simpsons uh, on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. If you want to find out how the popular culture was really scrutinized by Wikipedia Brown, turn to page 79. <laughs> and then edit it. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. Before, before we finish, uh, uh, Stokes and I, our last, uh, uh, the, the last movie we saw of 2009, and also the first movie we saw that ended <laughs> yes. in 2010, was um, Escape from New York. And I just want to read... Um, my favorite, uh, my favorite line from it. <laughs> the guy asks Snake Blitzkin, "You gonna kill me, Snake? Not now. I'm too tired." <laughs> 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 oh.